Grace, mercy, and peace to you, church. I was going to say, hey, y'all, just get that out of the way. So (laughs) if you would turn with me in God's word to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 16. The title of the sermon is Dying in Faith, Dying in Faith. If you would join me one more time uh, to pray before I get started. Father in heaven, we ask you now to meet us according to the riches we have in Christ Jesus, according to the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, the preacher is here in weakness. He needs your help. The hearers are here, Lord, to receive from your word life. Lord, we do not ask to leave here the same. We ask to leave here changed, more like Christ. So please, Lord, grant to the hearer ears to hear, hearts to believe, minds to think, and obedience, Lord, according to your word. And again, grant the preacher power from the Holy Spirit, unction. He needs it desperately. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Hebrews, uh, believed by the early church to be authored by the Apostle Paul. And so if I say Paul said, I'm not trying to be controversial. Um, I do believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, It was written to encourage Jewish Christians in a time of trial. The community had endured a hard struggle and much suffering. Uh, Sometimes they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Other times they were partners with those who were treated in that way. Paul records that they had joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. For a Jew to give up a speck of dirt from the physical promised land would have been nearly unthinkable. Because of this, the threat of apostasy loomed large over the community. Some who had professed Christ were becoming dull of hearing. You can see that in chapter 5. Infants really on the verge of death because they were not going on to maturity in Christ. Others never really left dead works. You can see that in chapter 6. They expressed no substantial faith in God. Many had been enlightened only to have fallen away forever, never to be restored again to repentance. That difficult passage in Hebrews chapter 6. There were the genuine, however, truly born again. Paul wrote to encourage them to have the full assurance of hope to the end. That those who were genuine would not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience would inherit the promises. Facing this problem and wanting to be an encouragement to the believers, Paul sets forth the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. He sets forth Christ as sufficient for all of life. If we were to sum up the book of Hebrews, we could say in one sentence, Christ is is better. Christ is better. So faith in the promises of God concerns chapter 11, in which our text is found, and by that, that is faith, the people of old received their commendation or approval from God. 
This wonderful chapter begins by giving us a clear definition of faith. So let us read from verse 1 all the way through verse 16, and then we'll focus in on verses 13 through 16. So Hebrews 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that, when, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So our first point of exegesis here is that I want you to see in verse 13, these all died in faith. Now, who is spoken of here? Though Abel, Enoch, Noah are mentioned, and though each of these died in faith, Enoch accepted, these refers more specifically to Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. They were heirs of the promised land. What is said about their faith? Well, first thing is they died in faith. Just as they lived, so they died. They died in faith, faith being a gift of God. Faith carried them through their life and enabled them to triumph in that last great trial of death. 
And two, they did not receive the things promised. The text does not say that Abraham did not receive the promises. It says he did not receive the things promised. Abraham received the promises. You can see that clearly in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. The reality of the things promised, he did not yet possess. But he received the promise of those things. A physical land with physical descendants was not ultimately in view here. Abraham went and lived in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Look at verse 39 of that same chapter. You can see that there. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Abraham went to live as in a foreign land. Samuel and David were in that same land, but did not receive the things promised. Paul speaks of things promised here because there was a singular thing which drew Abraham's attention. What was that singular thing? It was Christ. Christ drew Abraham's attention. This singular promise of Christ carried in it all the promises and blessings of God. This single truth undergirds the entirety of our understanding of the Old Testament. All the promises of God, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Paul would later say these things because he recognized all of the Old Testament points to Christ. But also their faith in the promises was twofold. Think about this. They saw the promises and they greeted those promises. Look at the text. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So they saw the promises. They comprehended them in the light of the revelation they had received. Jesus in John 8, 56 makes this crystal clear. Speaking to the Jews, Jesus said this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that what? He would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Faith brought near to the mind of Abraham the things that were so far away. So he saw those promises, but the text also says he greeted the promises from afar. They not only comprehended those promises, they embraced those promises. There was not the slightest hostility toward the idea of what was promised to them. In fact, it was quite the opposite, as the word indicates. They embraced those promises. They greeted those promises. They received the promises in as a friend, as a companion with whom they walked every day. They were foreigners on the earth, but the promises were not foreigners to them. It was a heart of love, a heart of delight, an acquiescence of their heart into the arms of that lover. There's no other attitude toward the promises that would have supported them through their journey than the attitude of embrace. So the faith of the patriarchs in the promises is that they saw those promises and they welcomed or greeted those promises. 
But there's another thing said about their faith is that they professed their faith. Abraham, when it came time to bury his wife, said this before the Hittites, Genesis 23, 4. This, is what, this was his confession before a pagan world. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. This was a public avowal on the part of Abraham, an open profession of their faith before men. And the profession was particular. What did they confess before the world? They confessed, first of all, that they were strangers. They were strangers. They were aliens on this earth. There was no ultimate familiarity with the world. They belonged to another place. They owed their ultimate allegiance to another country and to another government. They were from another world. Being such, they confessed that they were exiles and pilgrims. There was no permanence here for them. There was no ultimate rights to which they thought they could lay claim to or possess. They were exiles. They were pilgrims on the earth. And they were this for the entirety of their life on the earth. They were truly called out of the world. Well, this leaves us with a few observations regarding our first point. True saints persevere to the end. True saints persevere to the end. Listen to John Calvin here on this point. Though God gave to the fathers only a taste of that grace, which is largely poured on us, though he showed to them at a distance only an obscure representation of Christ, who is now set forth to us clearly before our eyes, yet they were satisfied and never fell away from their faith. How much greater reason then have we at this day to persevere? If we grow faint, Calvin says, we are doubly inexcusable. They died in faith, not in sight. Owen, John Owen remarks this, no distance of time or place can weaken faith as unto the accomplishment of the divine promises. So observation number one, plain observation, true saints persevere to the end. And if we grow faint, we are doubly inexcusable, as Calvin says. Second observation, faith in death is the strength of faith displayed. Faith in death is the strength of faith displayed. One Puritan writer says this, if a man that is desperately sick today did believe he should arise sound the next morning, that is whole and healthy, or a man today in despicable poverty had assurance that he should tomorrow arise a prince, would they be afraid to lie down and go to sleep? Faith in death is the strength of faith displayed. We who hope to live by dying should not be afraid to die. 
Faith and death is the, faith, the strength of faith displayed. Third observation, worldly people, unbelievers, do not and cannot confess themselves strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Worldly people do not and cannot confess themselves strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They can't. As weird as your teenage years may have been or are right now, as quirky and odd as you may be by nature or want to try to make yourself, apart from being born again, you are not a stranger to the world. Its children know you and you know them. Children of the world speak in a worldly way and live in a worldly way because they are worldly. I ask, does your Christianity make you a stranger to the world? Or are you just strange? Does your Christianity make you a stranger to the world? Or are you just plain strange? There is a difference, you know. Think about this in 1 John 2.15. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, second point. People like this speak Clearly, look at verse 14, Hebrews eleven fourteen. They acknowledge certain things, they confess certain things, they persevere to the end, and they speak a certain way in the world. Hebrews eleven fourteen. for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. People of this sort make it clear. That is, their manner of speech about earthly things and their manner of speech about heavenly things are easily known to those around them. This truth was foremost in their thinking, and therefore it was clear in their speech. Let me say that again. It was foremost in their thinking, therefore it was very clear in their speech. Out of the abundance of the heart, The mouth speaks. Look at verse 14 again. People who speak this way make it clear. It reminds me of another place where Paul speaks of the clarity with which the Christian life should speak to the world around them. 2 Corinthians 4, speaking of the light of the gospel among the nations and his apostolic ministry in particular, Paul says this, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. I wish many churches would pause right there and and just wrestle with that text. How many stage acts do we have to trick people's emotions into a decision? We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But what does Paul say? By an open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. By an open statement of the truth, Paul saying, my life is plain, my speech is plain. Here I am as an ambassador of Christ. There was a clear, explicit, plain, open statement of the truth of the gospel, just as there was in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even in times where the knowledge of Christ was very dim, Abraham made it plain that he believed by how he spoke. 
and how he lived. People of this sort, people of faith in the promise, make it clear. It's not so much that they have to speak as if they're compelled by some outside force. It's that they cannot help but speak. They feel the word of God bubbling up in their heart. So people of this sort make it clear. But also that they're not simply hoping in a homeland, but they're seeking a homeland. Again, look at the text. People who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. That they were seeking carries with it the same intensity when we consider Christ seeking the lost in Luke 19. A shepherd looking for a lost sheep in Matthew 18. Or the woman seeking to find her lost coin in Luke 15. They were not wandering toward heaven. You see those bumper stickers, uh, all who wonder are not lost. It's always on a Jeep. Um, the, the, they were not wandering toward heaven, beloved. There was, think about this. There was a patient, hopeful, and carefully structured intensity to their lives. They were seeking a homeland. Let me say that again. There was a patient, hopeful, and carefully structured intensity to their lives. So this brings me to a very plain observation. Every life speaks. Your life speaks, my life speaks, the unbeliever's life speaks. Every life speaks. Thomas Chalmers, uh, minister of the Free Church of Scotland, who at the time was in a great struggle to bring the church back from really just a a deadly uh, mediocrity. They were just dead in religion there. They were dead in indifference. Many church members were unbelievers. They were just in unbelief. Chalmers puts, puts, uh, puts it this way. Every man is a missionary now and forever for good or for evil. Whether he intends or designs it or not, he may be a blot radiating his dark influence outward to the very circumference of society, or he may be a blessing spreading benediction over the length and breadth of the world, but a blank he cannot be. There are no moral blanks. There are no neutral characters. My way of saying it is every life speaks. So this raises a plain question for us, beloved. What is your life saying? What is your life saying to the world around you? What's your life saying to those in your home? Your life is plain. It's plain, no doubt. It is speaking You can be plainly living for Christ, plainly living for the world, or plainly a contradiction. You can be plainly living for Christ, plainly living for the world, or a plain contradiction. Consider how Abraham could live so plainly with lesser light, and we seem to live so contradictory with greater light. Is there a plain an open sense of your words about Christ to a lost world. What is your conversation like? Every life speaks, beloved. Every life speaks. Well, third, consider this point. There was no consideration 
of their former country. Look at verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Everything from this point forward in the text hinges upon and is consequent to those previous verses. In verse 15, there's not a new thought introduced by Paul, but an expansion, a development of what was previously stated. The the apostle anticipates a rebuttal, and he adds an argument. Well, if these were truly believers and the physical land was really the promised land, what's the big deal? But Paul says this, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, their former homeland, they would have had opportunity to return. It's not somehow that that God burned a bridge so that they could not return. It wasn't even that they had lost their country somehow through war or famine. They weren't led off by uh, a pagan nation into captivity. They were in full possession of every benefit of their native soil. They had a country. It was familiar. It was enjoyable. It was a quiet way of life. They freely possessed the land and they could freely return. But they went out from this place, disowning it as their own. Our text says that they were not mindful of these things. They were not thinking of that land from which they had gone out. That is, there was no ultimate point of reference anymore for them in their thinking concerning that former country. Think about this. What's the proof that they had no consideration of that land? I wonder if you've ever thought about this. The text says they had opportunity to return. Think of this. The journey was short, okay, from Ur, modern-day Iraq, to Mesopotamia, To Canaan, modern-day Israel, was not a staggering distance. Tracing the outskirts of the Syrian desert, following the Euphrates River, Abraham would have traveled roughly 800 miles. That's from Atlanta to Holland, Michigan. Not a staggering distance. To put it in perspective, Manhattan, New York is 800 miles from Atlanta. Dallas, Texas is 800 miles. And the wild world of Guthrie, Oklahoma is 800 miles from here, population 10,000, and home of Aunt Gertrude's House of Art Gallery, located at 112 East Oklahoma Avenue. Little plug there for Aunt Gertrude. At average camel speed, Abraham would have made it to Canaan in about 10 days. This is a trip to the beach for some of you. He had opportunity to return. He made it there very easily. He could go back very easily. Further, the money was there. Abraham was a wealthy man. There was no monetary hindrance. Genesis 13.2 says that he was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. He had so much livestock that he and Lot could not dwell close together because the land simply could not support them. When Abraham sought a wife for Isaac because Abraham was approaching death, Isaac had an opportunity to return to Mesopotamia. But Abraham told his servant, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Abraham had cut that place off in his heart. And by the time Abraham's grandson Jacob died, it had only been about 200 years since Abraham left Mesopotamia. The point is this, beloved, think about this. There was nothing earthly 
standing in their way. The distance was short. The money was there, and it hadn't been very long since they had left. The temptation was large to go back. But there was nothing earthly standing in their way. It's not that they could not return. It's that they would not return. They would not return. Their heart was broken off from their former country. They had put their hand to the plow, and they refused to look back. So this brings me to a few observations. Observation number one. The cost of following Christ is nothing less than the death of you. The cost of following Christ is nothing less than the death of you. Listen to Matthew 10, 38, 39. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Abraham understood this. The cost of following Christ is nothing less than the death of you. Observation number two. Natural affections, however innocent and pure they may be, must be overruled if they get in the way of God's commands and calling on our life. Let me say that again. Natural affections, however innocent and pure, must be overruled if they get in the way of God's commands and calling on our life. Here's how the Lord would put it. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In Luke 9, Jesus says this, and they were going along the road and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Lord. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Natural affections, however innocent and pure, must be overruled if they get in the way of God's commands and calling on our life. Well, fourth point, the desire of a better country, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. There's a little word at the beginning of this verse that's very forceful. It's a conjunction that connects the previous train of thought with the current point that is about to be made. It, however, is a marker of contrast, but... That is, whatever may be in the reader's mind about the consideration of these former verses, Paul puts that idea to bed. But as it is, the country they sought was no physical one. It was a heavenly one. There was in Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob 
an eschatological perspective that went beyond the physical realm. This eschatological perspective is not new to them. It existed before the fall, even in the Garden of Eden. Earthly paradise in a pre-fall state was not the final state in which man was to live. There is an end purpose, a goal for the world before there was sin. It was not an end goal for things simply to stay the same comparatively. The end goal of all things was superlative to everything that had been created. Creation had not reached its final form because Adam had not completed his mission. Adam was to gain eternal life and heaven on earth, access to the tree of life had he obeyed. There was to be a transformation, a supernaturalization of man and the physical world. Adam possessed life. Think of this, beloved. Adam possessed life, but he did not possess eternal life. When Adam sinned in the garden, he didn't lose eternal life. He failed to gain it. Everyone post-fall, since the promise was given, and faith in that promise, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob included, desire this. They confess this to be their hope. They desire an earthly, a heavenly country far beyond an earthly country. The desire of every believer was not only for the restoration of all things, but the consummation of all things. They were not trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. I hope you realize that. Getting us back to the Garden of Eden is enslaving us to works righteousness. We don't want to go back to the Garden. They didn't want to go back to the Garden as something lost. They were not seeking to return merely to an earthly paradise. Abraham, through faith, was cultivating an eschatological hope. These early believers were not trying to go back to a former country or even to a former Eden. But what does the text say in verse 16? As it is, they desire what? A better country. That is a heavenly one where the transformation and supernaturalization of man and the physical world is brought into a perfect state. Listen to John Owen here. In the midst of the world and against the world, which despises things future and invisible in comparison to those which are of present enjoyment and use, they lived in hope, desire, and expectation of a future, invisible, heavenly country. Wanting to go back to the garden was to get it all wrong. The text says that this heavenly country was their desire. Here was not ultimate. There was the thing for which they strived and on which their consolation was set. They desired a heavenly country. That verb is a very strong verb, desire. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 Paul warns Timothy that for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving or desire that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That word craving is the same word desire in our text. It's the same word used of man, of a man who desires the office of an overseer. 
There's a purposed resolve, nearly a a myopic vision about his goal. Everything is structured around it. That's the idea for the believers in this text. They could be satisfied with nothing less than this. Nothing here truly satisfied. They tethered everything to that singular desire. And from that singular desire, everything flowed out. In a sense, you could say they had a God-centered vision for life. But how is this country they desire better? Think about this. What makes the heavenly country heavenly? Well, first of all, it's an eternal country, beloved. It's an eternal country. Everything here fades because of sin. At best, things here are unstable. Everything there is sustained because of righteousness. In this country, in this heavenly country, there's better air, better soil, unfading fruit, peace. It is tangibly better, better to the senses, better on the mind, better to an everlasting health. Better for communion with God. Death is gone. There's eternal life there. This country is teething, teeming with so much life that we must have a body recreated to enjoy it. Resurrected out of a state of death and misery. An eternal cheerfulness and joy encompass this country. Speaking of eternity... Uh, Herman Bovink says this, one of my favorite theologians. Herman Bovink says this, It is not the contentless existence of a person for whom, as in a result of idleness or boredom, grief or fear, the minutes seem like hours and the days do not go by but creep. He's speaking of eternity now. The analogy, he says, rather lies in this. In the abundant and exuberant life of the cheerful laborer for whom time barely exists and days fly by. From this perspective, Bavink says, there is truth in the assertion that in hell there is no eternity but only time. And that the more a creature resembles God and his image, the more he or she will rise above the imperfections of time and approach eternity. What's Bavink saying? We've experienced this, beloved. We've been around other believers with hearty fellowship where not the boredom of the moment seems forever, but the joy of the moment seems forever, right? We normally associate taking forever with things with boredom. My kids are on a 12-hour car ride. I'm bored, Dad. It's the same thing over and over and over but we've experienced the cheerfulness and the joy of Christian fellowship, true, hearty fellowship where we look up at the clock and we go, oh my goodness, it's 1 a.m. I have to go to work tomorrow. We, Bob Inc. is trying to bring to our minds that state of existence. The days fly by. Hell, there is more time in hell. And the more a creature resembles God in his image, the more he or she will rise above the imperfections of time and approach eternity. The former things are gone, and eternal country awaits. That is a beautiful truth. That's why this country is better. 
It's an eternal country. But number two, it's built and made by God. It's a society, it's a culture of one king. And not only is the foundation unshakable, but the structure and all of the inner workings of the system involved function and are supplied in everlasting enjoyment. Lions and lambs, Democrats and Republicans. Let me say that again. Democrats and Republicans, Methodists and Baptists, Arminians and Calvinists, you and your in-laws all find harmony in this heavenly country because the dysfunctionality and frustration of the former things are gone. Not only this, in comparison to feeling and resolving to be a stranger and an exile on earth, uh, in Old Testament terms, a tent dweller, the city is not only harmonious, but established and immovable. Here, beloved, our existence is cords and a stake and a tent. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. There, Christ says, we have a mansion, immovable. Here we have sand. There we have a foundation. Here kings come and go and presidents. There we have an everlasting king. There, beloved, we have the unshakable and sovereign wisdom, power, and goodness of God. That's the heavenly country. But probably most profoundly, not even probably, most profoundly, Christ is there. For the believer, that's heaven. Christ is there. This heavenly country and its ultimate reward is Christ. Christ is there. Heaven would be hell without him. You ever thought about that? Could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus weren't there? I've heard one preacher say, everybody wants to go to heaven, but they just don't want God to be there when they get there. Every lost person on the face of the planet has no problem with the idea of heaven as long as God is not there. For the believer, the expectation of the heavenly country is ultimately the expectation of seeing and enjoying Christ. Seeing and savoring Christ. Abel believed there was such a place. Enoch believed there was such a place. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob believed there was such a place. Sarah believed there was such a place. Being born from above, they desired the things that are above. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. With this hope alive in their hearts, they realized that true life consisted in intimate connection with God. As Gerhardus Voss would say, the eschatological state, the final state of our existence is a God-centered state. God is all in all to the believer in every age. It was no different for Abraham, and it's no different for us. As they looked for and acted in light of a future hope, the consequent of their faith was this. God was not ashamed to be called their God. He condescended to redeem them. He planted faith in them. He set them apart and sent them out as sojourners. And he glorifies himself by being called their God. Speaking to Moses, God says this, I am the God of your father, 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout the generations. This sort of faith was no embarrassment to God. They took not the Lord's name in vain, and he was not ashamed to be called their God. Wherever they roamed, he was identified with them. Think about that, beloved. Wherever they roamed on this earth, he was identified with them. And he has prepared for them a city. Look at the text, verse 16. As it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This was far beyond a physical Canaan and Jerusalem in it. Though they may not have understood that completely, it was a city prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. It's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And as Jesus says, fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Well, in closing, I do want to ask some heart-stirring questions, things for our consideration, things that hopefully strike you uh, in the core of who you are and leave you uh, meditating on the goodness of Christ the rest of the day. Are you a settled citizen on this earth or are you a stranger and a pilgrim? There's only two types of people. You're a child of the world or a child of God. Are you a settled citizen on this earth or are you a stranger and a pilgrim? I'm not asking you, are you frustrated with politicians or the current situation? And should things find remediation, you would quit your groaning. If there was world peace, would you still be a sojourner? Maybe that strikes at the heart of how we view the church. Is it a political animal? Do we find that if we have peace in our cities, that we're happy and we have no yearning for a heavenly country? Are you a citizen on this earth, settled, or are you a stranger and a pilgrim? Despite your circumstances, do you have a singular vision for the heavenly country, and is it plain in your life? Maybe I could put it another way. Maybe the, the way the Lord put it would be best. Where is your treasure? Where is it? How do you hold the things of this world? Do you hold them with a loose hand? One way to test for an idol in our life is our attitude toward it should God call us to let it go. One way to test for an idol in our life is our heart attitude toward that thing should God call us to let it go. So what is your appetite for the heavenly country? These Jewish Christians to which the Hebrews uh, letter is addressed lost their city, lost their countrymen, lost all the familiarity they once had in the land they once lived. These were Jews baked into the very soil of this physical promised land. But it says here they had a greater desire. I'm begging you to consider your hunger and your desire. Heed this warning. Heed this warning. If not handled correctly, God's blessings can be the most dangerous things in the world. God's blessings in your life can be the most dangerous things in the world. Because of your heart, the good things can lull you to sleep. The good things can lull you to sleep. 
and dull your vision, dull your usefulness in spiritual matters. One theologian puts it this way, and I'll end here. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every single night. Settling into earth does not happen overnight, beloved. It happens by degrees. You can't afford to love the world the way you once did. You can't afford it. You must lay aside every weight. The things that are not necessarily sinful, but the things that are unwise for the journey. I'll elaborate on that later this evening. You must lay aside every weight. It may not be necessarily sinful, but it may be completely unwise for the journey. One day, beloved, our hope will change to glad fruition. Faith will become sight and prayer will become praise. Until then, we must keep our eyes fixed on Christ. We must look to him in our pilgrimage here. We must be plain about our lives and let go of anything that God wants us to with joy and hope, knowing that a better country is ahead. He is sufficient for these things in the pilgrimage, pilgrimage, beloved. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are supreme. You are better than everything this earth has to offer. We ask you, Lord, to please give us strength by the power of your Holy Spirit to love you more deeply from the heart, to have lives that are plain in our speech, in our actions among the ungodly, and even among one another, Lord, that we may encourage one another as the day draws near. Many of us languish. Many of us have heavy feet on the journey. Many of us are trying to carry too many things with us toward heaven, weighed down by the world, Lord. Would you please help us to search our hearts, to know those things in our lives that are unwise for the journey. Help us to make a good and hearty and heavenly pilgrimage and help us to die in faith, not wavering. We ask you by the power of the Holy Spirit to do these things. In Christ's name, amen.